and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by The Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at The Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, as we get going on this last message in the book of James, try to think of a time, if you can, try to think of a time before there were hospitals, before the value of hand washing was understood, um, before medical instruments were sterilized between procedures, before there would be antibiotics, you know. Even in my lifetime, a few years back, I had something, and if I hadn't had the antibiotic, it would have killed me. With the antibiotic, no problem. Went home, right? But without the antibiotic, it would have killed me. Um, What would you do when you got sick in that kind of scenario? So now we're back in the first century AD, the Roman Empire. What would you do when you got sick? Well, you often died of things that are now easily preventable. And that's why we uh, are astonished when we read that the average age of death in the Roman Empire was 27 years old. A lot more infant mortality, a lot more death in childhood, a lot more death as a young adult when you came down with stuff. Um, There were medicines available in the first century based on combining oils. I mean, that that goes back to the Greeks, the ancients. You know, they could figure out uh, getting uh, stuff out of trees and bushes and, you know, the different oils they could make and stuff like that. But mostly those were for those who were richer, those who had more resources. So what would you do if you were a family member, you were just an ordinary member or churchgoer who was weakened by an illness? Well, you would reach out to your church leaders who had been entrusted with resources to the, by the congregation so that they could meet urgent needs. There's your fill-in-the-blank needs. Now, before we look at James chapter 5, turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. So, true or false, the church in Jerusalem was the very first church. True. And early on, they went from the apostles leading them to having uh, a group of pastor elders lead them. And the key leader became James, not the apostle. He got killed for the faith. James, the half-brother of Jesus, became the key leader in the church of Jerusalem. So we've been highlighting this as we've been going through the book of James, that James the pastor was writing to what he calls the 12 tribes scattered abroad. What he means by that is all those Jewish background Christians who had made up the early church in Jerusalem. And we know that 3,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost. And a couple chapters later, a couple more thousand were saved. They had thousands of people there. And uh, Acts 4 tells us something about them. Verse 32, it says, The multitude, so this is back when they were all together as a church in Jerusalem, before they got scattered all throughout the Roman Empire, they had by persecution, they were forced to head back toward their home areas they'd come to Jerusalem from. Verse 32 of chapter 4 says, The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. 
And with great power, mega power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and mega grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them their extra stuff and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Hoses, Joses, Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement. His name was Joseph, but he was of such encouragement to them, they gave him a nickname, Mr. Encouragement, son of encouragement, a son of something embodies something. You embody encouragement, so we're calling you Mr. Encouragement, the son of encouragement. He was a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So what, what are we reading there? Generous folks like Barnabas made substantial gifts to the church. The church body had those under the leadership of the elders somehow, um, and they were sensitive to the needs that were around them. The apostles and later the deacons, Acts 6, the deacons get going, had the resources necessary to help weak members. So they distributed as they came upon needs, as members alerted them to needs within their body of Christ community there in Jerusalem. As they were alerted to a need, they had the resources that had been given for moments like this to meet the needs. And in Acts 6, we learn that that involved uh, a Meals on Chariot Wheels type program. You know, uh, they were distributing to the need, to the, they were bringing meals to widows, right? Uh, uh, all kinds of widows, and they raised up deacons to help keep that going. And it probably, it doesn't take too far of a stretch of the imagination to think that this probably also involved helpful medicinal oils that these poor members would not have had access to otherwise without being part of a church family. Um, so remember, these are the day, this is the days before hospitals. In fact, it was Christians that later got the idea to say, hey, we've been meeting needs uh, with medicines for some time now. Uh, let's come up with hospitals so we can do it in an extra special way and, and target that need. And, and other parachurch ministries have emerged for 2,000 years to meet a specific need uh, you know, that the church often can't do as a whole, but would be better to say, let's get the people really passionate about medical care to help with that need. Hospitals were created, education, universities were created, uh, leper care, leper colonies were created, orphanages, orphanages were created, uh, and all kinds of helps like that. Consequently, it says that no one, in Acts 4 we read that no one among them lacked basic necessities. So, everyone that James writes to in the whole book of James had been part of that Jerusalem church experience. They had all benefited when they needed it from uh, the church having the resources to meet those needs. Really powerful. Um, now they had been thrust out to other parts of the Roman Empire, and they were going to have to uh, organize churches. And it's so cool as you see that happening, you know. And, uh, you know, Paul did a lot of church planning, but uh, the church he benefited from being a part of the church at Antioch was actually uh, put there by these folks that had left Jerusalem and reestablished a church there, you know, uh, or had established a church in Antioch. And that was happening in many places, and it just kept spreading and spreading and spreading. Now, we often think of the pastoral letters of Paul 
Now, let me drop back. What are the pastoral letters of Paul? Three of Paul's uh, letters are called the pastoral epistles, the pastoral letters. Do you know what they are? They start with T. First and second Timothy and Titus. We call those the pastoral epistles because Paul's writing to his young preacher boys and he's saying, hey, this is how you ought to do church, you know. This is why I left you in Ephesus, Timothy, and I'm writing so you'll know how the church of the living God is to function. Titus, I'm writing you. I've left you on Crete for the purpose of making sure you get leaders right there and know how to do church. So we call those the pastoral epistles. Um, but James's letter, probably the first book of the New Testament written in the A.D. 40s, should not be overlooked for its important information about how to do church. We've seen that as we've gone through, haven't we? He talks about what happens when the next person walks through the door uh, that is uh, not exactly what you were expecting and the hospitality you're supposed to show, you know. And he talked about different things like that as we've gone along. Um, so to, uh, today's passage is important because it was the last words James, James gave them in this important letter. So verse 13, James chapter 5, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him or her sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brothers and sisters, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Ministering to the weak and the wanderer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for how wonderfully the book of James ends. And it's been a wonderful book to go through. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for including it in the Holy Bible. And I thank you for Pastor James' heart for his dear church, Lord, who was scattered around, and they had had this awesome church experience back in Jerusalem, and many of them were never going to get back there again. They were going to have to return forever to their home cities or for the rest of their earthly life to their home cities. And in those cities, they were going to band together to start churches, raise up leaders, and apply all the things that the book of James calls for, the things they had seen modeled by the first church back in Jerusalem. Lord Jesus, I thank you that as James ends his letter, he has particular concern that the people of the church would minister to those among them who are weak and those who had wandered off. May we do the same in the year 2020. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Two sections, verses 13 through 18 and then verses 19 and 20. Verses 13 through 18 will be the heart of this message. The weak are to call for the church leaders to help them, according to verses 13 to 18. We begin in verse 13. James has three questions, three brief answers. Is anyone among you uh, suffering? Pray. 
That's a good thing to do when you're suffering, right? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything through uh, prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says, and if you do that, if you give your anxious thoughts to the Lord in prayer, it says the peace of God, He'll give you His peace to guard you, your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Is anyone cheerful? They should sing. They should sing. And so, uh, man, if you're joyful in the Lord, you should sing. And what's neat is, and somebody has even suggested that really uh, both responses are called for throughout the Scriptures, uh, you know, to sing and to, to praise and to pray, right? And so when we did our tabernacle acronym, the first one is teaching a Scripture, but second is adoration and prayer. And uh, adoration and prayer show our hearts are in tune with the Lord. It's a little easier to sing when our hearts are joyful, but uh, Paul certainly modeled when he wasn't joyful or you know, his circumstances weren't good anyway. There in Philippi, he was in jail and he was singing there. Uh, and this would be like uh, you know, uh, the heart of Job where he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So, uh, and then he gets into the topic that he really wants to discuss with his people. Um, James writes, is anyone among you sick? Now, folks, the word translated sick in verse 14 is the Greek word astheneo, which primarily refers to weakness. In all but three of its other appearances in the New Testament, it actually refers to physical weakness. And here, here's two occurrences of the word that directly relate. In Romans 14.1, Paul writes, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. In the church, there's folks that just aren't as far along, and they're trying to figure things out. They're weak in the faith. Um, but you don't want to get into arguments over silly things or doubtful things or whatever. You want to say, you really need to study that some more and grow. And as they're under the authority of the church and things, then uh, they, they can learn a lot if they'll just have a learner's heart. And we're supposed to have humble learner's hearts as Christians. We're to receive one who's weak in the faith. Then in 1 Corinthians 11.30, it says, For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. And in the context there, it was the Lord's Supper. They were actually in sin and not confessing it. And so we could say, for this reason, for the reason of sin, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. So it appears James, as he gives these words, is primarily addressing someone in the orbit of the church who has a sickness that has some link to unconfessed sin. Now, here's what we're looking at here. A church can always choose to do more than the Scripture teaches but we want to make sure we know what it teaches and do exactly what it teaches, even if we choose to do more than that. So, for instance, um, sometimes when a church is uh, caring for widows, uh, they don't look closely at 1 Timothy that gives clear guidelines on what a widow indeed is. A widow indeed is over 60 years of age, um, and has been a faithful servant of the church, and really doesn't have family to help that widow anymore. And so if the church has anybody in the, like that, then they ought to just go all extra to meet those needs for that dear older lady, right? But you can choose to go beyond that and be of general encouragement to all the widows you have, right? Even ones who have close families around. In this case, it is an honor as a pastor to get a few leaders together and somebody have read this passage and say, hey, I've got cancer, and will you pray for me before the chemo starts? It's an honor to do that. But it looks like James specifically has in mind 
somebody who's come to realize that they have a sin problem and it's affected their health and they say, huh, I can't physically go to church right now and walk down that aisle, that altar, whatever the church did in those days, you know, and, and confess it right there and have them help me get right. So I need to call for them to come here and help me get it right, to pray over me and maybe bring some of that medicine the church in that day had access to, right? Um, so uh, turn to Psalm 32 because we see David in Psalm 32 himself had a time after Nathan had confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, Nathan, uh, David talks about what was true in his life before he repented. And it's clear that a good amount of the physical problems David was experiencing was because he had unconfessed sin and needed to repent. So, and of course, man, this is where pastors and church leaders particularly love to help people, right? You've been in sin, you're confessing your sin, you're getting right with God, you're getting back on track. Man, if I can pray for you and you're giving you an aspirin too, uh, you know, I want to do that, right? So Psalm 32, verse 1, David says, Blessed is he whose transgression whose is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Look at verse 3. He says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Huh. David says, I was living in a state of unconfessed sin, and it affected the strength of my bones. It affected my vitality. And we see that with Jonah when he was in sin against the Lord, don't we? There he was, he was sluggish, uh, and he was sleeping, and many, uh, de, you know, th there's, depression is a very complicated thing, but sometimes discouragement and depression comes because a person will not own up to the sin in their life and confess it. And so in the head, in the heart, in the body, sometimes there's a direct relationship there, and David was saying that. Verse 6, for this re oh no, verse 5, sorry, I acknowledge my sin to you, my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I like that because all those things it talks about in verse 13 are there, right? Uh, there is prayer. There is singing. There is the weak having a sense of being made whole again, uh, which is really, really, really good. And again, I don't think it's wrong for church leaders to respond to the call and pray, whether it's at the church or somewhere else, for somebody facing something. But I think as we go through this text, we see clearly James has this in mind, even if you add in the other things. So look again at verse 14. Call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So he has in mind a time when a weak member will yearn to have their spiritual leaders pray for them, but they're too sick to make it to church. So in that case, they call and the church comes to them, uh, which is really cool. And the church leaders are told to bring the oil with them, anointing the person with the oil in the name of the Lord. And looky here, I have some oil. It says here, frankincense and myrrh. And many times when I've had the privilege with others to pray over somebody, this is the oil that I use. Now, oil. 
Why bring the oil? The Bible speaks of both ceremonial and medicinal purposes for oil. And James seems to combine the uses here. Um, and so you'll read commentators that tend toward the Catholic side of things and say, all the times you're anointing with that oil, you're being like the priest in the Old Testament. And as the pastor leaders of the church, the elders, you're like the priests of the Old Testament when they anointed people. There's a ceremonial thing there that you do. And even some of our Pentecostal friends love that kind of thinking about it. Then you've got some other really good preachers and Bible students that say, listen, what Pastor Danny's already been telling you, like the church having the resources to have medicinal oil, that's what this passage is really all about. They were, uh, they were praying and they were bringing medicine is what they were doing. So, uh, you know, and, and I think what's happening in here is James is giving us a little bit of each in there. Uh, there's a setting apart the, the, of the person asking God to heal them uh, physically, spiritually, emotionally, the whole deal, the whole person. But I think it also was clearly they were able to buy some of those expensive oils as a church and be able to use those in ministry uh, when the individual member could not. So do you remember what did the wise men bring Joseph and Mary for baby Jesus? Three things. Gold, frankincense and myrrh. And um, now think about being Joseph and Mary. You are you've gone from Nazareth down to uh, Bethlehem to register and you got a new baby and you don't need ceremonial gifts at that point do you you need money and you need medicine right gold obviously could buy them a lot of things when they had to be in Egypt for a while they were set for a little bit before they got back to Nazareth and frankincense and myrrh the oils could be combined to a soothing ointment to be used to calm baby Jesus when he had to colic, when he had to uh, whatever, you know, even a little bit of that on rashy butts and stuff like that. Oh, can I say that on tape? I don't know. Okay. Anyway, it was very practical. And I think it's that medicinal use that David has in mind in Psalm 23 when he says, you anoint my head with oil, right? That whole Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David had been a great shepherd for sheep. He's thinking about how his shepherd is the Lord. By the way, the word pastor is shepherd. So that's cool. The Lord is my pastor. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. But he gets down there and the shepherd sometimes would have oil and they'd take that oil and they'd rub it on the sheep's ear. And the little varmints that had borne down inside the ear, that would irritate them and they'd come to surf the surface of the ear. And the shepherd would, with his fingers, pull that old worm out of there and bring relief to the sheep. And of course, there's different ways oils combined bring relief to uh, people. Um, if that's what James has in mind, he may be speaking of how the church leaders came and they helped the person with the spiritual needs because they were equipped to do that, to lead them to Jesus, if they're, if, you know, to help them have eternal security if they didn't have a sense of the, their, their salvation or the eternal security of their salvation. But also they'd have some of these things on that could help along the way as well. Um, but let's be sure and keep our options before us because oil in the Old Testament was used for ceremonial purposes and what would they do? They'd set apart the person or things for God's purposes, like the priest as they begin their priestly service. 
It represented the blessing of God. It represented the presence of God's Holy Spirit in their life. And certainly, it's a special moment when somebody comes that, that's been, uh, and they say, I, I need God to show up in this moment. And the church is coming and ceremonially saying, if it's that taken that way, that, uh, yeah, we believe that God will answer our prayers. Uh, and there's nothing magic about the oil or anything, but God will answer our prayers. Exodus 40, verse 9 said, You shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that's in it, and you shall hallow it and all its utensils, and it shall be holy. The word holy means set apart. And so they set apart the priest for service, the building he was serving in, the sacrifices he would bring, the utensils that were used, all those different things. And these are for God now. And when we're praying over a person, we're acknowledging, God, you made this person. You've got a purpose and plan for their life. So we are humbly coming to you and we're setting them apart for the purposes you have for them. We know they've got some kind of sickness here. And as we've already talked through it, they're acknowledging that they're a little off track with God. We've just helped them get back on track with God. So we want to take and, and, and we're calming them and soothing them with this oil. But we're also imploring you that uh, they will experience what you want them to experience in their life for you uh, in the, all the ways that that could happen. Now... Look closer again at that verse 14, because what is the last phrase in there as you anoint the person with oil? And we're going to talk more about the word anointing in a minute here, but uh, what's the very last phrase, the last six words? In the name of the Lord. So how are we supposed to pray? We're supposed to submit our request to God, and then what do we often say at the end of our prayers? We pray in... Jesus' name, amen. So we're saying, Lord, hey, we're down here. We want this person to get back on track with God if they're off track. We want our brother or sister to be healed. We want them to get to the other side of this cancer, this surgery, whatever they're facing. That's what we ought to think ought to happen, Lord. But we're just human. We're not, we didn't create everything. We don't keep it going like you do. And so... What does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? In a couple weeks on Sunday morning when I'm back, we'll be in that passage in Luke where Jesus is in the garden. And in His humanness, He models praying for us, uh, praying, prayer for us. He models prayer. He's praying for Himself, but He's modeling prayer for us. He's showing us how to. And He says, Father, if possible, take this cup from me, Right? What did the cup represent? Old Testament, the cup of wrath due sins, right? We're the ones that should be drinking the cup. Jesus is about to take the cup. And in His humanness, in that moment, He's saying, Father, if it's possible, I don't want to die right now and drink that cup. Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but Yours be done. What's He modeling for us there? Yielding to the Father and being willing to receive the answer no or the answer wait, if a no will be for a greater yes, even though in our humanness we can't understand it, right? He prayed it once, he prayed it twice, prayed it a third time, then he got up and was arrested and went to the cross for us, right? The Father did answer that prayer no for the greater yes of our salvation. Whew! 
So, when we pray in the name of Jesus, we're saying, Lord, if you want to veto this, even if it means the person we're praying for now does die and go to be with you and experiences total healing, we submit that to you. You can handle what we can't understand. Now, how do you get the name of the Lord means the will there? Well, yeah, see, we're, we're in the days where one presidential candidate calls the other a clown and this one calls him stupid, you know, and that sort of thing. We, we have leaders that are just like us. They, they, they thought of their leaders as more removed as like kings and emperors and stuff like that, you know. They didn't dare speak a word against the king. They knew that'd be instantaneous death, you know, and that sort of thing. In those days, when you went in the name of the king, the name of the emperor, so if I, had, uh, if I had something to get to Joey and I asked David, hey David, will you go to Joey? and uh, take him this message, and I put my seal on this thing. My name is right here on it. You're going in my name to him and asking for this. If David took that request and said, oh boy, now's my chance. I'm going to go to Joey. I'm supposed to be going in Danny's name under Danny's authority, but this is my chance to ask what I want when I get to Joey. So he goes and said, and he asks for what he wants. He says, I come in Danny's name. Did he go in my name? No, he misrepresented my name. He's not going in concert with what I wanted, is he? So when you end your prayer in Jesus' name, what you're saying is, not my will but yours be done, Lord. If you want to veto it, that's okay. So that's a huge part of this. Now, again, ceremonial feel to the oil or medicinal. It's a little bit of both that's in there probably. Unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church took this passage and turned it into a passage that supports confession. That's one of their seven sacraments. Uh, the confession to a priest as an intermediary, like Old Testament priests. There's none of that language in the New Testament that we're to go through a priest to get to God uh, or that there's a special uh, rank of believers that's over another rank. That was the Old Testament priesthood and Catholic Church borrowed that language uh, they also uh, had sac the sacrament of extreme unction. And the text here really doesn't support either. So Catholics have seven sacraments, and what they do is they believe that the sacrament brings grace to you, and it can also be denied to you by the priest or the pope. So when the Catholic Church excommunicates somebody, they're saying, you're cut off from grace, you're going to hell. We've cut you off, and we can do that. Um, when they deny communion to somebody, that person is temporarily estranged from God until the official church allows that to be right and stuff. And two of theirs, uh, the sacraments, are confession to a priest and extreme unction. Extreme unction is uh, the priest anoints a person who's about to die, right, with oil, uh, or who has just died, so it's a big deal for a Catholic at the end of their life to get a priest there to say, you know, say that final prayer over them, extreme unction. And they say something like this, By this holy oil and God's tender mercy, God forgive you whatever you've sinned. But this passage is not about death, it's about living. It isn't oil for the dying, it's oil for the living. Not about death, but about health. So, how do I come down on this passage here? I think it's best to think of the oil as being... Actual medicinal oil the church as a whole could obtain, but individual members could not. The word anointing there is literally massaging or rubbing a medicinal term used. Anybody here ever um, read uh, anything uh, like the... Have you had a, anybody here have a key study Bible? 
the key study Bible by Spiros Zodiades? Well, Spiros Zodiades was a Greek scholar. He did lots of Greek tools that were accessible to people. The key study Bible allowed you to look up words and see what they meant. And uh, he grew up on the island of Crete. And he actually, as a child, they were still practicing when a person was sick, they'd call for the leaders of the church to come over and they'd give them a whole bath in oil to calm them down, to uh, soothe them in their troubled state. Very uh, medicinal like that. And of course, that was something practiced in, by the ancients as, as well. Um, James knew as they went to cities and organized churches, they'd do the same thing they modeled in Jerusalem. So what's, what's, what does that mean for today? I think James is talking about trusting God and taking your medicine. The best modern application may be for church leaders to address spiritual needs with the person, then pray over them and advise them to follow medical instructions. And of course, it was Christians who cared about the whole person who built the first hospitals. Um, so yeah, that's a bit of a different way to think of it than a lot of times is, but it's in concert with the passage and it's in concert with the words that are in there. Um, now, look at verse 15 back in chapter 5. It says, When this is done, the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. So um, sometime when you get a chance, I've referred to tools like blueletterbible.org that you can do Bible studies in. Some of you have concordances. Sometime do a word study of the word saved. And it's fascinating because we know saved can be about our eternal salvation, right? Um, but there's plenty of other ways that word is used also to mean preserved or restored. And what dictates how it's to be taken is the context the word's in, right? So, you know, in Timothy, there's this verse that talks about a woman being saved through childbearing. So if you've had a child, you're going to heaven. <laughs> no, it's, it's more like preserved there, right? Concentrate. She's supposed to concentrate on her feminine role before the Lord, even as the guy is supposed to concentrate on his masculine role before the Lord. Certainly not spiritual salvation there. Uh, and the context lets us know that. We've kind of got that going on here. Um, the word translated sick in verse 15 is different than the one in verse 14. But like the one in verse 14, it's not really sick as much as weak. Um, and in this context would better be translated weary weary, as in Hebrews 12.3. In fact, James is right on the same track as the author of Hebrews here. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. So there is a weakness that can come through unconfessed sin. There is a weariness that can come through spiritual discouragement. And so we could have said how to minister to the weak, the weary, and the wandering, but that would have been a little crazy, too much alliteration, right? Hebrews 12, therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the ones in Hebrews chapter 11, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance, that's the word to circle or underline, run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at verse 3. For consider Him who endured such hostility from sinners against Himself, lest you become weary, same word as James 5, weary and discouraged in your souls. 
So like James, Hebrews is calling for endurance, and that's what James has been calling for. Hey, are you weak and you're struggling with sin? Don't forget to include the body of Christ in that, uh, especially uh, when you're, sin you're, you're starting to come home to roost. Hey, are you weary? Are you discouraged? Uh, God's got something for you too. He can, he can, if you can bring that into the light and let the church pray for you, then uh, you can be restored. You can be preserved. Um, and it's really beautiful when you think of it that way. Um, the overall aim here is to help people face what they're facing with God's peace, whether He chooses to heal now or in eternity. Now, I love the fact that even though James wants them to trust their leaders and go to them for spiritual leadership. He's got a far greater agenda for Christians as they minister to one another than just follow the leader. And that's to be the leader as you help others, right? So look at what he does in the next verse, verse 16. Confess your trespasses to a Catholic priest... To a Protestant pastor? Is that what it says? No, to one another. Hey, look at the person next to you and say, you're one another. <laughs> you're one another. I'm one another. You're one another. Um, that's me. That's me. He's got me in here. Confess your trespasses to David Thompson. Confess your trespasses to Kathy Thompson. Pray for one another that you may be healed. That you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. So Catholics somehow look at this passage and use it to reinforce the idea that you've got to go to a priest or, uh, and you've got to have them prescribe to you what to do. Um, but James says, hey, there ought to be a climate in the church where you go to one another as real, genuine, vulnerable people and say, I'm struggling with this and have them speak the truth they've been learning from the Word into you and pray for you. And when you need to, get the church leaders involved in it too, you know help you get from where you are to where God wants you to be. The idea of sacramental confession to a priest didn't come in for five centuries after these words from James were written. It's the fifth century, so that's 400 years. Pope Leo I made it a sacrament of the Roman Catholic Church. And it was so bad that he did that. And I was sprinkled Roman Catholic when I was a child. But, uh, and there are born-again Roman Catholics, but they belong to a system that obscures simple obedience to the Scriptures, right? And they add in other layers, and one of the layers they've added in is ripping Old Testament verses out of context and making leaders priests who do something for the people they can't do for themselves, rather than the Scriptures saying, Jesus is the only high priest who did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, and then there's a priesthood of believers where I can pray, I can seek God's face. I can help you get right with God. You can help me get right with God, which is awesome. So that means there's as many ministers, there's as many people ministering in the church as you have committed faithful members of the church. And when you unleash the laity to think like that, then you're ministering everywhere you can during the week with the truths you're learning from the Scripture and putting them out there. So it's really cool. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, Sin drives Christians apart and produces a hellish individualism, a deadening independence. 
Sin withdraws us from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive the power of sin over him. But confession to a fellow brother or sister destroys this deadly autonomy. It pulls down the barrier of hypocrisy and allows the free flow of grace in the community. Uh, big words there, but some really good stuff. Um, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And in this context, I don't think he's talking about super saints. I think he's talking about committed saints, ordinary believers, who know their righteousness is from Christ and they're committed to praying, as James calls for here. In verse 17, I take it that way because he refers to the example of Elijah. And what does he say? He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He's an ordinary man. Don't make too much of them. He was a man who was serious about loving God in his prayer life. And we know he was also a man that got discouraged sometimes. And it did everything he could to stand at that Mount Carmel experience. He did it by faith. And you'll have your moment where you're called to stand. But the theme is that he was a person just like us and that God answered his prayers. So Griffith Thomas, who I think was a man from Wales, I may be wrong about that, but I think he was from Wales, I think you've got this quote, said, There are many things outside the power of ordinary Christian people, but the humblest and least significant Christian can pray, and as prayer moves the hand that moves the world, perhaps the greatest power we can exert is that which comes through prayer. Now, I'm ticked off another birthday this week, and sometimes when we can't do as much physically as we once did, we thought, okay, my best days are behind me, right? And not in front of me. But when God gets us in a position where we pray deeper than we have before and longer than we have before in those things, some of our richest ministry happens, right? And so that's why we want to keep a vibrant relationship with our shut-ins going. We want them to know what to be praying for. And some of the greatest things in this church happening right now might be happening by some of our sisters praying at the Roman Eagle Nursing Home, right? Or Stan Nick praying for things over where he is, you know? And so we want to keep that link going because we think, oh, the greatest is our activity for the Lord. But sometimes when we slow down a little bit and start praying like we should have all along, then the real power starts to happen because God can do more in a millisecond than we can do in a hundred years. Amen? So... That's why Jim Elliot said, the saint who advances on his knees never retreats. By the way, do you know that tradition says that James himself was a real prayer warrior? Anybody know what James's nickname was in the early church? What it? She knew! She knew! Yeah, James's uh, nickname was Old Camel Knees because they were so calloused by himself being a prayer warrior like Elijah. Very good. Star of the day right over here for Brenda. All right. Well, that would be a great place to end the letter. But like Jesus, James takes it one step further. And we don't even need to spend a lot of time on it because it's just convicting to talk about it. I love it when people recognize they have a spiritual and physical need and call for my help, the church to help, leaders to help, anyone to help, right? It is so wonderful when people say, Danny, I need to talk to you about something and, the, and the just it flows, right? And you help them get right with God. It's wonderful when they call you. It's absolutely wonderful when that happens. But James ends by saying the church is to take the initiative for its members who have wandered and to try to get them back on track. So verses 19 and 20, the church is to go to the wanderer without being called to help. Whew. See what it says there? Brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth 
and someone turns him back. Oh, thank God for the someones who don't forget about those wandering sheep that have gotten into trouble with this and that. And a lot of times they don't want to talk to you, but they know you love them because you check in. And then the day comes where with you taking the initiative, it finally happens, they get right. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death. And it might be preserved there again. You're preserving a soul from a bad physical death. Or it could mean they were lost and you helped get them saved. And of course, cover over a multitude of sins. Sins they might have committed if they hadn't gotten back on track. Sins that may have gotten into their families generationally because that were averted because in this generation they nipped it in the bud and got right with God. Tell you one story and then we'll wrap it up here. Um, so when I was in Tennessee, I went to um, the last two or three years I was there for college, I went to an independent Baptist church, First Baptist Evansville, and served under a great pastor there named Bill Smithson. Love him dearly. I need to get him here sometime. And uh, so he was the guy that took James 5, 19 and 20 literally. And he um, would go and knock on different doors and he would go to this one fellow named Lodge Russell. And he would go and he, before he'd even get out of the car, Lodge was on and, and Lodge just looked like a Tennessee hillbilly. I mean, he really did. He, he'd, he'd have a hoot me saying that, but it's true. And Lodge would be out with his shotgun faster than Bill Smithson could get out of his car. And he'd say, Lodge, I've come to talk to you about the Lord. He said, Preacher, you better leave now or I'm going to shoot you. And Pastor Bill would say, Lodge, I see it's not a very good time today, but I'll be back. That happened several times. And then one more, the Holy Spirit put on Bill's heart to go out there another time. And he got out of the car and he thought, this is going to go the same. I don't know why I bother. But he said, Lodge, I've come to talk to you about your relationship with the Lord. And Lige put the shotgun down and he said, I'm ready, preacher. Lige Russell was the best worker that church had besides Bill Smith. And I got to hear that testimony after the fact. And Lige Russell went into some third world looking Tennessee with a church van and brought kids to the church. Oh man, the Pharisees at the church hated all these little snot-nosed kids being around. But one by one they got saved and some are in the ministry today and good parents and other things because Bill Smithson didn't give up on Lige Russell and Lige Russell became a children's evangelist kind of guy and uh, good things happened from there. Aren't you glad that's how the book of James ends? It ends just like the Gospels ends, right? Going to people, restoring prodigals. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.